This will be the fourth in a series of messages on the subject of infant salvation. And it will be the second part of a message entitled, The Sinless Theory of Infants. What happens to an infant which dies in infancy? In the previous three messages, we have seen that it is the general consensus of opinion among mankind at large, Christendom in general, godly individuals, and the leading systems of theology that infants are savable creatures. That seems to be pretty much of a unanimous agreement. But there are several divergent theories given to explain how this salvation occurs. I have stated that I believe that all infants and idiots, and by an idiot, again, we are not using that term in derogatory fashion. We mean an individual who has lost the mental capacity to reason. I believe that all infants and idiots who live and die in a state of moral incompetency, are saved and glorified in the presence of God. But any attempt to affirm or to prove a theory of infant salvation, which in any way contradicts God's revelation in the Bible of man's sin and the gospel plan of redemption, must be rejected as false. We must be careful when we're trying to affirm something that we do not cause a problem elsewhere in the Bible, because the Bible is a harmonious whole. And if any of our beliefs cause problems elsewhere in the Bible, we need to stop and look carefully at what we believe and to understand what the uh, parallel issues are there. We have given four basic propositions which must be upheld in order to be true to God's revelation in the scriptures. They are, first, that all infants dying in infancy are by nature guilty and depraved or sinful. Secondly, that all infants dying in infancy, if they are saved at all, they are saved by the atonement of Christ and in no other way. Thirdly, that all infants dying in infancy, if saved at all, must be regenerated and sanctified by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, that all infants dying in infancy, if saved at all, must be saved by an application of redemption prior to their death. Now, we believe these four propositions are essential in order to remain true to the gospel plan of redemption as it is revealed in the Scripture, that God does save sinners. In fact, that's the only people he does save, is sinners, and that he saves them prior to their death. There is no intermediate state in which that there is a second probation given unto the descendants of Adam. So then, we must maintain these four propositions if we are going to affirm the salvation of an infant. Any theory which ignores or contradicts any or all of these four propositions must be cast out as false in that it is contradictory to the revelation of God in the Scriptures. In the last message in this series, we looked at the first of these false theories, which is known as the sinless theory of infants. This theory bases its major premise in the character of the child by asserting the sinlessness of the child's nature at birth. 
The principle of original sin or natural depravity is flatly denied by this view. This view holds that man, as he was created by his Maker in the beginning, that is, Adam, and as he makes his appearance as a child in generation after generation, is neither sinful nor holy, but is a moral negative or a neutral. Man's moral character, it is held by this view, suffered no injury from the fall of man, and thus each descendant of Adam is born into the world with the same nature as Adam was given in his creation, that being supposedly a character of moral neutrality. Upon then reaching an age of conscious discernment, the will of each person may choose a course in sin which is in every case avoidable. By this choice, either to good or evil, then, the person creates his own moral character of sinfulness or holiness, and thereby ceases to be neutral. That is, until an act of his will takes place, he is a neutral moral creature, which is a contradiction in itself. It's like a double negative. There just ain't no such thing. And English teachers, please uh, overlook my, my English there. But that man is viewed by this theory as a moral negative, then he reaches a conscious age of discernment, and by an act of his will, he creates his future nature to be. But the choice, until this choice to sin occurs, he is viewed as an innocent creature, with his savability resting on his sinless moral character. Therefore, the advocates of this view will make such references as the innocency of the child. Now, I, as a Calvinist, may make termed references to that from time to time. But I do not mean the same thing as the Pelagian or the one who holds the sinless view of a child. By innocency, I do not mean, if you ever hear me say that, that a child is sinless. This is what this view means when it says that a child is innocent. This view of sinlessness traces its roots to the Pelagian system of theology, which was propagated and systematized in the first half of the fifth century by the individual known as Pelagius. It then developed through the centuries into the liberalistic system of theology known as Socinianism in the 16th and 17th centuries, which was primarily designed to overthrow the theology of the Reformation. Its modern-day advocates are the Unitarians, that is, as a religious denomination or a religious body or sect of people. But this view is also infiltrated throughout all the major denominations, so do not think that it is just uh, you have to be named a Unitarian in order to hold to the sinless view of infants. This theory has permeated through rationalistic reasoning throughout nearly every major religious denomination today. This view must be rejected as false because it contradicts both natural and biblical revelation regarding man's nature. In last week's message, we gave four reasons based upon natural revelation why this view should be rejected as false. They were very briefly this. First, if the infant were born with a neutral character, it could never be anything else. Now, what do you mean by that, Brother Jim? I simply repeat. 
If an infant is born with a neutral character, it could never be anything else. Why so? Because a person or a being which is neutral cannot of itself shift itself into gear and become either moral or immoral. We base that upon the principle of the law of inertia, that principle that works in the realm of the human mind the same way that it works in the realm of physical science. Tie a ball on a string and let it stand. That ball is in a neutral condition. It cannot by itself start itself moving. And it cannot by itself, if you push it, it cannot stop itself from moving. If the child comes into the world neutral, it cannot start itself into a course of holiness or sinfulness. Therefore, if it is born with that type of a character, it could never be anything else than a moral neutral individual. Secondly, natural revelation affirms that every moral creature is either good or bad because these are the only two varieties of moral character which we know. We know good and evil, but we know nothing in between. And if a person is created a moral creature and is not a tree, is not a horse, then they must either be good or bad. There just is no in-between type of a being. Then thirdly, if infants are born sinful, then we have to reason in this fashion. If infants are not sinful at birth, rather, why do they always grow up to become sinful adults? And human history has known no exception except the one human being named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We repeat again, if infants are not sinful at birth, why do they always grow up to become sinful adults? This view must explain what there is in an in a infant's nature, that when it lays hold upon a choice out here, that it always chooses the evil and not the good. There must be something that is attracted to it. And Jesus Christ is the only sinless infant in human history. Now tonight we wish to progress from natural revelation to biblical revelation. Does the Bible have anything to say in regard to the character of an infant? When does man receive his sinful nature? And this, I must state then very dogmatically, that biblical revelation clearly reproves and disapproves of the sinless theory of infants. This is not just something that is debatable. It is something which is clearly stated in the pages of God's revelation. First of all, biblical revelation clearly disproves the sinless theory of infants by clear and precise statements on the sinfulness of human nature. Clear and precise statements are given in the Scripture in regard to human nature. Such as, we list a few, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, There is no man that sinneth not. Quote, unquote. Psalm chapter 143 and verse 2, in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. 
Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? And that's God's challenge to the race. Who can stand and say, I am free from sin, I am pure from sin? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Now that isn't a fuzzy scripture. That is a clear, cut, precise scripture. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Someone might say at the outset, but you're charging man in a wrong way, Brother Gables. You're just a hard-headed Calvinist, and you're slandering human nature when you accuse human nature of being inherently evil and sinful. My friend, I remind you, you may find fault with me, but dare you not charge God with slandering human nature. This is God's indictment here. These are scriptures which I give without any added comment, which I have just read to you, which is God's verdict of human nature, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So clear biblical revelation universally affirms that all men are sinners. This is also affirmed by asserting in the Bible that all men need the gospel. In order to be saved, all men need the gospel in order to be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. God now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Why does the universal call of the gospel to repentance and the faith, why is that given indiscriminately to every member of the race? Because all men are sinners and in need of the gospel. That's why it is extended. It assumes that all men are sinners, and therefore God can require repentance out of all men. He can require faith in Jesus Christ from all men. For all men need to be saved by coming in contact with the gospel. Now then also, the fallacy of its sinless infants is also renounced by the scriptures confirming that the infant is not a sinless creature, but is instead defiled with a nature which is stained with sin, from the very moment its life begins. Some might object up to this point, and you might say, well, Brother Gables, all that you have given is that those scriptures which might relate to adults. Then let us go even further. The Bible clearly announces that infants are given a nature of sinfulness from the very moment in which that their life is conceived in the womb of the mother. 
let us call to the witness stand none other than King David. He ought to be able to give us a pretty good witness. Being a personal sinner, an experimental sinner, and yet someone whom God could say is a man after my own heart, then we ought to be able to trust David as he writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5. Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5. David is repenting of his sinful act with Bathsheba in immorality, repenting of his having her husband Uriah the Hittite murdered, repenting of having covered up through a Watergate experience, if you please, all of his actions as being the king of Israel. Now then, God's Spirit has convicted him of his sin. Look what he says in the fifth verse of Psalm 51. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, beloved, he's not charging his mother with giving birth to him out of wedlock. David is saying that as my very life began, at conception, that as I was shaped within my mother's very being itself, I was shaped as a sinner. In sin, my mother conceived me. Now, if David had believed in the sinless theory of infants, do you think he would have said that? Let's suppose a moment that he did hold to that theory. Let's suppose that David was a Pelagian in theology. How would David's repentance go? He would have to say, Oh God, I remember the day back there when I became conscious, and I, by an act of my own will, chose to sin. Oh God, I remember how wonderful it was before that time. I remember how happy how holy, and how I enjoyed life. But, oh, I regret that day that when by my own free will I created within myself a character which became sinful. Oh, God, send those days back. Is that David's testimony? No, David went back further than that. David went back to the very womb itself, yea, even to the very moment of conception when life began, as to when he inherited his sinful nature. Go on over to Psalm chapter 58 and verse 3. Psalms chapter 58 and the third verse. Here we read in this verse that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray. As soon as they be born, speaking lies. As soon as they're born, they go forth from the womb, speaking lies. And, beloved, if you haven't had one of those little ones yet, you come and see me when you do. You come and see me when you do. They'll make it sound like that they're absolutely dying. And you'll get that bottle ready and run and stick it in their mouth. And they didn't want that bottle. They just wanted to be held or they wanted something. 
they know how to get what their self-will desires. And as soon as they're able to communicate out of the vocabulary of human language, they start telling lies to cover up their own selfishness. This is the biblical record of when sinfulness begins in the experience of a human being. They go estranged from the womb. As soon as they're born, they go forth speaking lies. Isaiah chapter 48. Go there. Let the prophet give us a word on this matter. Isaiah chapter 48. Here's God's edict upon his sinning people Israel. God had given them clear-cut commands as to what his will is for their life. And yet he told them, I know before I ever give you these commands that you're going to break them. Now, why did he know that? These were conscious adults with which he was speaking to. Look down in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 8. Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not, yea, from the time that thine ear was not open. For I knew that thou wouldst deal very treacherously, and was called a transgressor from the what? This is God's word. I gave you commandments as adults, but I declared ahead of time that you would not keep my commandments because you were a transgressor from the very womb before I ever gave you this clear-cut, revealed commandment. You already had a sinful nature. You already were born with a nature in sin. This is God's verdict upon when sinfulness begins. Come to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. The prophet, or rather the apostle, states, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the what? The children of wrath, even as others. Were by natural birth under the wrath of God, possessing a sinful nature, even as all men are. So the scriptures not only declare that the whole human race is sinful, but it also declares that this sinfulness begins at the very moment of conception. It manifests itself as soon as it comes forth from the womb, and it continues to grow and develop to where that all then will manifest the propensities of their evil nature. Then next, the scriptures refute the doctrine of the sinlessness of an infant by revealing in various passages of scripture that hidden deep within the inner depths of human nature is the well from which flows all the various evils which make their appearance in human history. How many of you have ever come across an artesian well? You know what an artesian well is? That's something in which that it actually is so much water underground, it just shoots right up to the surface of the ground and runs off like a river. If you got downstream and began following that, that water toward its course, you might come up there and see that well spurting water up out of the ground. 
But down beneath the surface of the ground is where that well's origin is, from which flows all of that water and which becomes visible to your eyes. The scriptures declare that all the sinful acts which manifest themselves in human history can be traced back to the hidden, deep, inner resources of man's nature, the artesian well of sin. For example, we can give just a few of those here tonight. In the book of Genesis, chapter 6 and verse 5, the scripture declares that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Where was his, this evil from? In his heart, in his inner man, in the deep inner resources of his nature. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Job chapter 14, verse 4, ask this question, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And then the answer is given, not one. Not one. Job goes on to say in chapter 15 and verse 14, What is a man that he should be clean? And he which is born of woman, that he should be righteous. Where is this unrighteousness coming from? It's coming from that deep inner resources of human nature. And it manifests itself openly to the eyes of men in life. Job chapter 15, verse 16. Abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. Just as man has to have water to survive, his very fallen sinful nature has to sin to be satisfied and happy. We read in Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, there's the all-seeing wisdom of God, declaring that as he looks down upon the race of Adam, he sees not one free from sin. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, asks the question, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from sin? Who can say that? But where is the problem? It's in the innermost man, in his heart. You see, it's not something out here on his surface that he can just give himself a bath and get it cleansed and taken care of. That's why the waters of baptism can never wash away sin. Because that's not where man's sin is. You've got to go a lot deeper to find the origin of man's sinfulness. It's not on the surface of his skin. It's in the innermost part of his very being. Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh can only produce sinfulness, and the Spirit can only produce holiness. That is clear. In the book of Matthew chapter 7 and verses 16 through 18, Jesus speaks of his people, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? 
Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. I would stop and pose a question there then. What kind of fruit could a sinless, neutral person bring forth? Couldn't bring forth any kind of fruit. Then where would an infant go that was born with a sinless nature? Well, you say, Brother Gables, it sure couldn't go to hell. That's right. God couldn't condemn it. But neither could God take it to heaven either. For heaven is the place for those who are holy, just, and good. But the infant isn't that. He's supposedly got a, a neutral act. And he hasn't chosen any holiness, any justice, any goodness. So the infant could not go anywhere. That's why Roman Catholic theology has to make up a limbo and an intermediate place for infants rather than putting them right into the presence of God in heaven. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. These are just a collection of the specimen of text of Scripture in which that God gives his verdict by showing that human nature is inherently sinful, and it is so from the very conception of life itself. Now, the next line of reasoning which the Bible gives in disproving the sinless theory of infants is by showing, now listen carefully, that the death of the infant is proof that it was sinful. That the infant's very death is proof that it possessed a sinful nature. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Turn there. We're going to spend a little time in that passage of Scripture this evening. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. This passage of Scripture must be dealt with by all systems of theology which claim to take seriously what happened in the Garden of Eden. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. The apostle states these words. Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Beloved, we can't cut that out of the Scripture. We must handle it in some way or another. And what other way than handling it but by merely looking at what it is clearly implying? What is it saying? It is the divine ordination of God that sin and death have been connected together as cause and effect, so that wherever you see the one, you can infer that the other is there also. Then you look close, death will be there also. Do you see death taking place? Then you may infer also sin is present at that location. It is a clear-cut revelation of Scripture that people die because they are sinners and that death is the proof that they have sinned. Now, if an infant be sinless, 
then please explain to me why they die. Why do they die? And if you want to then take the rationalistic approach to that question, which many take when they find they cannot find a biblical answer, they then run back and say, nothing happened in the Garden of Eden. Man would have died anyway, whether he sinned or not. And my friend, you just run out of the Bible. You've run right out of the revelation of God, and you've become a rationalistic type of a thinker which is wiser than God's revelation in the Scriptures. Sin is the proof, or rather death is the proof, of a person having sinned. That's a universal. And it came through one man. It came through one man. I want us to read the next two verses here, which are very, very important in Romans 5, 12 through 14. I'll read verse 12 again. Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam. Anybody disagree with that? Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. The day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. All right, read on. And so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. There's a cause and effect relationship there. Well, when did all sin? Since all die, all sinned. But when did all sin? Look next verse, verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, here the apostle is referring to the revelation of law that was given to Moses at Sinai. And that is proved from the next verse, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to who? To Moses. There's a time period. That time period in which that there was no codified commandment. Like was given to Adam, stay away from that tree. Like was given to the Ten Commandments which Moses was given. Thou shalt not, thou shalt. No codified system of law. But yet, people still died from Adam to Moses. Why? Look on. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude or the manner of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, somehow there were some people here that did not sin like Adam sinned. How did Adam sin? Adam's sin was personal and it was conscious. Adam was given a clear-cut commandment on a cue card held right up to his face. Say, that's the tree. That represents my sovereignty. I've given you authority over all the animals, plants, and minerals, but you're still under my command as a creature. Now, you stay away from that tree, and in the day that you disobey, you shall surely die. And when Adam sinned, he sinned personally and he sinned consciously that he was transgressing a commandment of God. But here were some people from Adam until Moses was given the Ten Commandments, which did not sin like Adam, and yet they died like Adam. Clearly asserting that in some way 
they still sinned, although they sinned not like Adam sinned. Who are these people who sin not after the similitude of Adam? I dare not give just my personal view here. I must call in some authorities, not that they are infallible, but men who have spent years and years in doing nothing but studying the Scriptures and in writing some of the most gifted commentaries upon the Scriptures. I know of no higher authority to look to on Romans 5, 12 through 14 than the individual by the name of Robert Haldane, who I personally believe is the prince of commentators upon the book of Romans. I want to read to you what Mr. Haldane has to say on this passage of Scripture. Listen carefully. If death comes through sin, then all who die are sinners. This proves contrary to Mr. Stewart's view that infants are not sinners in Adam. If infants did not participate in the guilt of Adam's sin, they would not experience death, disease, and misery until they themselves become actual transgressors. Now stop and think with him for a moment. If infants did not sin in Adam, then infants could not die until they choose to sin, and then death would fall upon them. But infants die before they ever reach this personal demonstration of sinning. Thus, in some way, they sinned. Now, how did they do it? Because they die. Whoever perished being innocent? He asked that question. Whoever did God ever condemn who was innocent? Is God unjust? Of course not. Of course not. What innocent person did God ever condemn? You say, I know one, his own son. But you look again. He was not innocent when those clouds covered up heaven and the sun refused to shine. My sin and the sins of his people were loaded upon Jesus Christ to where he became the most vulgar seen in the eyes of God that God had ever seen. Ever sin of all the race of his people laid upon him. Ever single, vile, defiling sin is what was charged to Jesus. And he became a lump of sin in the sight of God. He was not innocent even when he died. But God has never punished an innocent person. And yet children die. Then they cannot die unless they be sinners. Let Mr. Haldane go on. Or where were the righteous cut off? Death reigned from Adam to Moses over all the race. And here's where I agree with Mr. Haldane. Even over infants who did not actually sin, but sinned in Adam. That's who it was that sinned not after the similitude of Adam. Adam sinned personally and consciously. An infant does not sin personally and consciously, and yet they possess a nature which is sinful because they sinned in Adam. 
And because of that, they are worthy recipients of the punishment, which is death. Infants die because they sin in their representative in Adam himself. Now, someone may raise up right now and say, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Then don't you dare claim salvation by a representative. If you won't take your place in the first Adam, don't you dare show your face before God in the second Adam. If you won't identify with your sin in the first Adam, don't claim salvation in the representation of the second Adam. Go on out and try to save yourself. Go on out and save yourself. Don't look to Christ if you don't identify with your fall in Adam. But bless God, that's my very hope. That's my very hope. If I fell in another, I can be saved in another. And if I've reached a point where I realize I can't save myself, then perhaps there's salvation outside of me in another. That's why I love the great truth of substitution. I sinned in my first representative, Adam, and I am saved in my second representative, the second Adam. Bless God. For such a gospel. Mr. Haldane goes on and says, If the reign of death proves the reign of sin in such persons, must not the reign of death over infants equally prove the reign of sin? If the death of adults before the time of Moses was a proof of their being sinners, then of necessity the death of infants must prove the same thing. If death does not prove sin in infants, listen, it cannot prove sin in any. If infants may die, though they are not sinners, then adults may die without being sinners. I trust you find the inescapableness of his argument. Well, we won't just go to Mr. Haldane. One of the great exegesis of all time is a man by the name of Meyer. He states that the word Greek word here, thanatos, is, quote, physical death. Because when Adam sinned, all men sinned in and with him, the representative of entire humanity. Death, which came into the world through the sin that had come into it, has been extended to all in virtue of this causal connection between the sin that had come into existence through Adam and death. All became mortal through Adam's fall, because this having sinned on the part of Adam was a having sinned on the part of all. A man by the name of Dr. Stifler, professor in a Baptist theological seminary, and this is, incidentally, this is one of the older seminaries. This man's dead now. You won't find too many Baptist professors today which would agree with Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. But here's what one of the old Baptists, one of our forefathers, held. Listen closely as he comments on these words. Death is consequent on sin, and so death passed upon all men because all men sinned in Adam. But now the fact is that death reigned, had sovereign undisputed sway during all the no-law period from Adam to Moses. In all this long period, death came to those who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. That is, they had not broken any formal command. 
Many more irresponsible babes died in the flood than men. If then death is the penalty of some broken law, and these had none, it follows that they broke the first law, they sinned in Adam. Now, that's a Baptist theologian. They sinned in Adam. You say, well, let's, have you got anybody else? Let's call in an Arminian, all right? Let's call in a Wesleyan. And even this man will agree with Romans 5, verse 12. A man by the name of Dr. Beat, he says these words. The universality of this moral disorder suggests irresistible a moral fault in human nature. In other words, the nature common to all men and received at birth contains in it a tendency to sin. Whence came this universal moral defect in human nature? Through one man centered into the world and through sin, death. The first sin of the first man was the source of the tendency to evil which is inherent by birth. And that man was not a Calvinist who just said that. He was an Arminian. He himself acknowledges that sinfulness is inherited through the birth of the child's nature. It must then be accepted on exegetical grounds as a dogmatic statement of Scripture. Now listen, that death is the proof of the sinfulness of all who die. That cannot be rejected without departing from the Scripture. So infants must in some way have sinned because they die. How did they sin since they do not personally break any revealed personal conscious command given to them from God himself? They sinned in their father, Adam, and thus inherited a nature from him which is worthy of guilt and condemnation. Now, since death is a punishment, and punishment is inflicted by suffering, I'm going to ask us the question then. How then could God justly cause or permit a sinless child to suffer? I'm going to run that bias again, all right? Since death is a punishment, and punishment is inflicted by suffering, if children are sinless, how could God justly cause or permit a sinless being to suffer? And yet, children suffer and die. It's inescapable logic. They must be sinful in some way. In some way, they are worthy of that punishment. Now, there's only two types of punishment which we know anything about. They are, first, penal or retributive punishment, which is inflicted out by the law upon a criminal with the intent of making that criminal conscious that he has violated the rights of some member of society. The purpose of that punishment is for revenge, 
It is to uphold the justice of the law. But there is a second type of punishment which is inflicted, and that is the punishment of chastisement. And its design is to remedy the imperfection of the act or of the nature. That is, you can either punish a person like a judge punishes a lawbreaker, or you can punish a person the way a father punishes his child. And there's two different motives in mind. The father's design in inflicting punishment upon the child is to remedy the act of disobedience. The judge has no intention of remedying the crime. He merely wants to see that justice is held out. Now then, let's apply the case here to the innocent, to this infant. If this infant is sinless and innocent, what kind of punishment is it that God is either causing or permitting this infant to experience? Is it retributive punishment? How could God punish someone who is innocent? If you hold to the sinless view and you say that the, sinless, that the infant has no sin, then how can God justly punish the infant? He has no grounds to do so. Well, let's go to the only other type of punishment that we know anything about, and that's the remedial punishment, which is designed to remedy some indwelling imperfection in an individual's life, and so as to purge that taint of imperfection out. If the infant has no sinful taint in it, then there's no need of any punishment to remedy it, right? And yet the innocent, or rather the child, suffers and dies. In reality, we know that. But God cannot justly send condemnation on an innocent child. And if the child is sinless, he can't be designing to correct it of its sinfulness. So what, how then can God deal with a child by permitting a child to die? And the only verdict is that that child is not sinless. It is worthy of death. But bless God, we'll see in the messages to come that just as Jesus Christ suffered to obtain our redemption, God calls upon me to enter into the suffering of Jesus Christ. And God also calls upon those little infants to experience some suffering in order for them to enter into the glorious redemption that's in Christ Jesus, the Lord. There will be no infant in heaven who will be a stranger to suffering. There will be no infant taken to heaven but what has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. But that death was not designed as a form of condemning punishment. His very death was designed to remedy his sinful nature. We'll see that a little later on, all right? Don't want to get ahead of myself. When we see uh, then why does God 
allow a child to die? Why does he allow a child to die? The sinless theory then must be rejected as false in that it is disproved by both natural and biblical revelation, and it departs from God's revelation concerning man's sin and the gospel plan of redemption. It cannot stay within the framework of Scripture and affirm that an infant is sinless. It departs from God's revelation, and therefore it must be rejected as false and untrue. But bless God, that doesn't mean that we still cannot have an understanding for the possibility of the salvation of an infant. A plan that will be consistent with God's redemptive program in Christ. For that child can be made a partaker of the saving grace of Jesus Christ through the atoning work upon the cross of Calvary and the application of that work to its very nature, regenerating it as and when the Spirit pleases to do so, as the wind blows and sanctifying it of its sinful nature before it's ever taken to heaven. Bless God, we do hold out not just a hope, but a great hope for the salvation of all infants and idiots which die in a state of moral incompetency. But we must not run to the sinless view, for in so doing we shall cast out a large segment of the Scriptures. And if that be cast out, then we do not really then need a Savior for an infant. Would an infant be able to sing the song of the redeemed in heaven? I believe so. I believe so. Then that means it had to be viewed as sinful and it had to be redeemed, regenerated, and sanctified before it was ever taken to heaven. Bless God, although those little unaccountable, those little ununderstandable words that come out of that infant's mouth may not be intelligible to us now. The great mysteries of God is that he is enabled to make that little one conscious at any given moment by a divine work of regeneration and implanting within them the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, where that they shall be able to sing around that throne, redeemed and so happy in Jesus, redeemed and forever I am. Infants are going to be there. In that throne, and they're going to be there because of Jesus' work, not because of their sinlessness. Let's conclude there this evening.